Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, and I'm based in Derry in Northern Ireland. And as always, I'm joined by my very good friend, Sebastian Kaplan in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Good day, Seb. Hello, Glenn. How's it going over there? Yeah, it's going good. It is Tuesday, the 23rd of June. These days are just merging into one. There's still some lockdown here. I get out of the house now and again, but my days merge into one. So Tuesday, the 23rd of June, 2020. And all's good. And really looking forward to today's conversation where we begin to expand even further into the exploration of motivation and culture and the impact of culture on MI and influence of MI in the exploration of culture in treatment and wider field. What about yourself? How's things? Things are going fairly well here as far as the shutdown or the lack of shutdown as it's increasingly happening here in the U.S. Sort of an interesting experience where there's increasing concern about more cases and increased positive test rates and hospitalizations. And at the same time, people are really just sick of being at home and are going out in the world. And many people are going out in the world in ways that are counter to what our public health officials are recommending. Fortunately, it's taken on, like most everything else in the U.S., a very political one side versus the other framework. And we shall see how this is all going to play out. But the situation is, I think, precarious would be a good word for it at this point. Mm just trying to do as much as we can do as individuals, really. But yeah, today's episode is one that we have been looking forward to for some time. We reached out to our friend and colleague, Steve Rolnick, who many of the listeners will remember from a previous episode and may be familiar with just based on Steve being one of the co-founders of MI and asked for any ideas or recommendations for guests from South Africa, where Steve is from originally and continues to do a lot of work in the MI world. And um, and so we are very excited to have our guest today that Steve recommended to us. But before we introduce our guests and get to our discussion, Glenn, might you introduce our social media platforms and how people can contact us? So on Twitter, it's at Change Talking. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. For emails, either with ideas for future episodes or questions, either for myself or Seb, it's podcast at glenhines.com. We do invite all kinds of questions, comments, and ideas for episodes. If you are listening of the streaming services, it would be great when you finish is just to go on and leave us a star rating or a comment. That would be fantastic. But on with the show. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Goodman Spago. Did I get that right? Did that sound to you? It's close enough. Close enough, yes. <laughs> Before we went on air, Goodman was explaining that even people local to him find it difficult to pronounce his name properly. And they were saying that in Irish, the spelling of a name and the pronunciation of the name aren't necessarily the same thing. 
And it sounds like it's the same here, but we're delighted that you've made yourself available today. Good man. And as with all episodes, can we just start by just tell us a bit about yourself and your journey into motivational interviewing? Sure. Just to start by saying, I also have no idea what day of the week it is until I check my calendar anymore. So we're all in the same boat yeah. and navigating all these COVID restrictions and, you know, what comes of our lives after this. Yeah, so thank you for having me. My own background, I'm a medical doctor, trained in a province about 2,000 kilometers north of here, Kozuru Natal. And after I did my initial medical degree, I specialized in psychiatry, where one was exposed to various different styles of psychotherapy. And, you know, the ones that resonated the most with me were psychodynamic and later on schema therapy because it really is about exploring the person's perspective, the person's origin, where they come from, and how that impacts on where they're going. And I think that links to, you know, Emma in many ways. And after that, I then came and did my PhD at the University of Cape Town, which really focuses on providing training for various levels of cadre, particularly focused on areas where there's a high burden of HIV and targeting behavior change uh, related to either harmful substance use or behaviors around health seeking for mental health and health access for mental health, in as far as those link to outcomes for HIV. Following my PhD, I subsequently have come to become co-director of the South Africa HIV Addiction Technology Transfer Center. I think in the U.S. you might be aware of the ATTC network. So there's, I think, about 11 or 12 ATTCs in the U.S., which have now expanded into additional sort of networks. And the network's focus really is around reducing harms of substance use and providing access to care and access to best evidence for management and training for substance use disorders. And as a result, the ATTC work has sort of leveraged that expertise and that pool of resources to tackling substance use disorders in South Africa. And a huge chunk of our offerings is centered around MI. And as a result, I've come to interact a lot with MI and we've had the privilege of being able to start working with Steve Rolnick as well. Wonderful. Yes. Thank you, Goodman. And one thing I was curious about is you mentioned some of your past training in psychotherapy and talked about the importance in particular of understanding a person's own perspective on their health and their life choices and those sorts of things. Maybe you could say a little bit more about what you mean with that and how you understand the importance of the person's perspective to be with regards to health behavior. Because I imagine there's some natural links to what motivational interviewing offers. I think one analogy I like to sort of refer back to time and time again is the whole Apple rationale, or why you buy an Apple device. I use largely Apple devices because I'm sold. You know, I'm sold on the idea that my life is very busy. So in order to create sync and flow, if I'm using the Apple service, there's a sort of connectivity between all the activities I have to be engaged in and it's seamless and it's easy. So there's a motivation to continue to remain a subscriber of the Apple product because I understand how it will benefit my life because I understand how my life is busy enough or requires that kind of flow and order. The same applies to somebody who is engaged in a behavior which might either be harmful or requires a level of commitment from them. If they don't have the buy-in, which is originating from understanding how it is that their circumstances are impacting on the trajectory of their life in a way that could benefit from change, then there's no way that you can convince them to take that part, sort of that path on. So I was saying to you, I was on another webinar before this, so I haven't really done that much planning, but I did think about our conversation today. And part of my thinking was the fact that in our context, 
paternalism, the idea that somebody who is trained and has all the knowledge is going to come and tell you what to do is associated with safety and containment and knowledge and the fact that just because of how historically things have been done. But what we do know for a fact is that when it comes to harmful substances, when it comes to behavior change, that there's no way that you can achieve that if the person doesn't have the motivation to really navigate all the difficult steps that are required to get to that end point or get to that next step. When we're managing people who have depression or psychosis, there's always that risk that when they go home and they don't have the nurse giving them the medication in the ward, that they will step away from the routine that's required for them to remain adherent and become stabilized. But if they understand why there's a routine, if they understand why there's a need to take the medication at a certain frequency at certain times of the day, the likelihood of them doing that without that supervision is increased. So that's really where I'm talking about motivation from. That's fantastic. And we appreciate that. One of the things that was interesting about what you're saying is that that idea of us wanting to give instructions to point out, look, Apple product is much more productive than Android and your life will be much better if you just unify all of what you're doing. That that the instinct that is driving that from the practitioner is a, a desire to be caring and to be supportive of the patient or the client. But what you're identifying is, is that the desire to be helpful in itself does not make us helpful. It's about the client's decision. And what you're describing too is that in your research, you have identified that there are certain things that the client needs to experience in the relationship with the helper for them to be able to transfer the, the information and the knowledge that has been shared during a treatment experience. And that, that rationale of why it will be better for me to behave like this it's really important that that makes sense to the patient or the client. I suppose the responsibility and the challenge for the practitioners to ensure that, that just giving information in itself isn't enough. It's about clarifying the patient's understanding of the information and does the information align with their circumstances outside of the treatment environment. And I'm wondering, how have you learned or what have you noticed about how to help that shift take place so that it's not just that the specialist or the expert or the practitioner has the information, it's about how to ensure that that information exchange is done in such a way that it improves the client's understanding and therefore the likelihood to implement these changes? It's very much a two-way street. South Africa is beautiful for many reasons. One of the reasons it's beautiful is because of the mix we have here of cultures. My father was a mix of Sutu and Posa. My mother is Zulu, so I'm a mix of three different clans and three fairly different cultures with some similarities. South Africa has 11 official languages, so there's various ways to interact and to communicate. And as a clinician, it's not feasible to have a plan of management or treatment that does not provide room to be receptive to the patient's own understanding and concept of health seeking and, and the practices required for health attainment. I was recently in part of a study which looked at the genetics of POSA people, of people with schizophrenia who are POSA in South Africa. And as part of that project, we did a few social responsibility things. And as part of a study that I was leading, looking at cultural formulations of mental illness, we went into the wards and spoke to patients who were stable and about to be discharged with mental illness. And without fail, in that ward, this was now a, a ward which was located in a rural hospital in the Eastern Cape. Folks were very happy to have less voices, to be less uh, delusional and to take their treatment. But what they said is that they still know that no matter how much treatment they take, they still have to go and do the traditional practices. So they still have to go and slaughter the goat or slaughter the cow or slaughter the 
chicken and call the family together. So what that means is that as a clinician working in South Africa, one has to be ready to receive the conceptualizations of health driving behavior or of the completeness of the pursuit for health. So the clinician has to be willing to listen to the patient's background, their story, their beliefs, their concept of what needs to happen for them to be well. And so this really feeds into the whole idea of am I saying, you know, where are you at? Because if you tell somebody, you know, you need to take Risperidol one milligram twice a day and that's all you need and you tell them that's the only way to get better, the chances of getting them to buy into the treatment plan is less likely than if you say, I understand, or even before you get to that point, tell me what your health-seeking practices have been and tell me everything and don't worry about me judging. I want to learn from you. So then if the clinician then receives the information around those cultural practices. It's a question of how then does that clinician interact? You know, we start talking there about, you know, non-judgmentalism, all of the practices which are, you know, espoused in MI. In my clinical experience and in our research experience, and as we provided training, it's become clear and reinforced just how key it is that that patient's perspective is represented in the dialogue, in the conversation, in the treatment planning. Yeah, really wonderful example of both the mindset that a practitioner really needs to have, assuming they're going to use a method like motivational interviewing, of course, which we're all obviously biased towards, the mindset of being open to what the patient's perspective is in the first place, but then a great example of a specific way of, or specific kind of question that taps into that. What are some of your own health seeking practices and how, how might they fit with the recommendations that we have? It really makes me think of examples that we come across here in the States, or at least where I'm based in North Carolina, where, and it, I don't know that it's differentiated so much by culture or where people are from necessarily, but there's certainly a portion of the population that might be more likely to seek I guess we would call them alternative kinds of treatment. Alternative is a broad term, of course, and I'll use you know my quotation fingers for those, but they might use more naturalistic remedies, for instance, that a trained doctor might have concerns about or might bristle against because of the lack of efficacy or the, the difficulty in really controlling how much of a particular substance is in a natural remedy. And you can see these conversations that really get derailed early on when providers dismiss what a person is already doing or what they believe might be useful for them and how I'll say a, a simple shift, but certainly it's not simple to do this, to just be open to what someone is already doing and maybe being curious about what their experience has been in seeking their own strategies or, or in their own strategies guided by another provider from before, or maybe it's something that's been passed down through generations within their family. Or I guess another thing that people bristle against is the internet and finding information on the internet, which yes, of course, there's some information that's reasonable and helpful and others that might be more concerning, but it's having that mindset at the start and then having some specific ways of asking questions on how to match up the things that you know as a provider can be helpful with what another person feels like is helpful to them. And I think it's that balance between information sharing for safety, 
we don't know what's in the material that you're consuming versus wanting to remain in that collaborative space with the patient. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's a bit balancing from what you're describing. It's a bit understanding. What's what's the client's goal? Part of what the practitioner's exploring is what is your goal from coming here looking for treatment? And what are you currently doing and how close to where you're trying to get to is that getting you? And there's the opportunity to then go, what is it you hope I can do to add to what's already working for you and work from that perspective? It's not saying, okay, we're going to go back to year zero and start from scratch. It's you're going to work with what's in front of you and recognizing, you know what, prayer or meditation or, you know, some drops here and there may in itself be working for the client. And it's really important that we don't dismiss that experience for them. In fact, we augment their recovery with what it is we can offer them. You know, that speaks to that whole idea of having to negotiate what the end point is or what the desired outcome or, you know, what your intermediate outcomes will be. Obviously, there's a clinician, if somebody comes to you and they desire might be completely different you know their desire might be that i just want to be able to have a relationship i just want to have time with my with my wife and my kids so you know that negotiation of as clinicians navigating the balance of desired outcomes from the system systemic side from the individual patient side from the clinician side from the facility side because those will all be competing right uh, that the negotiating of what is important to both individuals in the uh, discussion that's the word I was looking for, by the way, but I couldn't pick a language. <laughs> okay. Well, I only have one to choose from, so I guess it's pretty easy for me. Another thing that we're curious about from a cultural standpoint, and you know, so often these conversations can get really sort of oversimplified, and you know, obviously there's going to be variation within cultures, right, of, of individual preferences and how people respond to styles and, and approaches. Obviously, within MI, we're trying to establish a partnership that one way that's often described is as two experts. If the conversation involves one provider and one client, both are experts. The provider is the expert on their field and the research and whatever it might be. And the client is an expert on their own experience, their life history, their own lived experience with whatever the ailment might be, whether it's schizophrenia or depression or HIV, their own experience with past efforts at treatment and, and how that's gone for them. And, and that's the collaborative nature of what MI strives for. And one of the things that certainly in my training or you know in efforts to learn about culturally competent practices is an awareness that there may be some cultures or maybe more accurately put some individuals within certain cultures that might prefer a more hierarchically driven modality. And I don't know that much about South Africa or the world of healthcare provision there, Goodman. But I wonder if you could speak to maybe that in particular, maybe some other things that would come to mind as we're talking about these sorts of issues. Yeah, I think when you come to a patient and you suddenly give them space to view themselves as an expert in what is being negotiated, it's uh, foreign to them, isn't it? For very much the same reasons that you're saying is that historically, the professional has been the one to tell you what's best and what needs to be done. And I think in, in our context, that's reinforced forced by a few things. When I think about my own Fossa culture, I have a great deal of respect for my mother. She's achieved great things uh, with very little. And she's a Zulu woman. She acquires a lot of respect in her own family. When she comes home to my closer side of the family, which is my father's side of the family, she's expected to be entirely submissive. So there's an expectation that she knows her place and that she will step back. And so in, in that space, the, the woman's voice is not 
expected to be heard loudly in a public forum, for instance, or in, in forums where decisions are being made. But I know very well that my mother is the head of my household now because, my, you know, my father's or our household because my father is late, for example. So there's been a an inherited position of submissiveness, which makes the shift to becoming somebody whose voice matters in an interaction like this challenging. So when you come to somebody uh, and you're providing an MI intervention and you're saying, tell me where you want to go, it's, it's something that can be difficult to navigate because no one's ever given me the room to do that. So that's one challenge is people who now have to reorientate themselves to being in a position of power. Now, what makes that even more challenging is that in reality, they don't have power. One of the things we're realizing now with COVID is how the disparity in privilege and in access to resources results in the impact of uh, the restrictions having a disproportionate sort of impact on, on folks who have less and don't have access to resources and personal industry, frankly. So they, you know, they're less likely to be, you know, militant in seeking, maybe militant is the wrong word, especially in the context of what's happening now, but perhaps who are more uh, driven to actively seek appropriate access to resources. I think that's a better way of putting it. So you're telling me that, yes, historically, that now in order to make my life better, I have a voice. Fantastic. But when I leave here, I don't have anything. I don't have any money. I don't have a voice in my home. I don't have the industry or the resources to make some of the changes that I might say I want to make. That imbalance in power is, for me, a very important consideration when we talk about providing MI-based interventions in our context. So it, it's not just having to shift somebody from being a receptive individual, but to being somebody who is a policymaker in their own life and a decisive decider of what comes next and playing that off against the actual reality of what it is they're actually having to, the context that they're having to make these decisions in. So for me, that's the, that's the challenge. So now I'm a medical doctor and I'm also the youngest in my family. So that's a really weird sort of paradox for my family that I'm the last born. So in theory, I should be the one being told what to do. But because I'm the doctor who is fairly senior at a division in the University of Cape Town, my currency changes. So I have a louder voice because of that. What you're identifying is that when we're working with people, we have to appreciate that the, the place that the individuals act varies from individual to individual and that the empowering experience of motivational interviewing may be very broad for some people and very tight for others because of the experiences they have outside of the therapeutic room and that yeah. the opportunities, yes, it's lovely that you're asking me what to do, but I'm not sure there's really any mileage in me doing that because when I leave here, I'm not really going to be able to do anything about it because of my environment. Yet you are offering an example where culturally it's expected because you're the youngest, you should have the quietest voice. But because your circumstances have changed, you have your position in the family and the roles and responsibilities and the volume of your voice has been changed within that culture. It's recognizing that while it may be like this, the practitioner maintains and holds hope for change, however big or small it may be. And it's about working with the client wherever they're at to explore. I imagine even to begin with that idea that even just exploring with them, what's it like for you to have your voice in this room? 
it's a question about hierarchy, you know, and about the value in the voice of a professional. And I think around the world, you know, the voice of a medical doctor is fairly well respected. And so there is that expectation that receiving advice from somebody with a medical qualification holds more weight. So again, uh, in this MI interaction, you are recognized in my culture, in my country, internationally, as somebody who has the knowledge to tell me how to fix this thing. But here you are telling me. So it's navigating that. So it's adding another layer. So first of all, I'm not used to being listened to. You're telling me I must speak. But when I leave, what point is that going to, what difference is going to make? Because there's no way for me to exercise this power. And now also you're supposed to tell me what to do. And now you're telling me, no, you want to listen to me. So it's a complex shift. And I think what makes it more complex is that what we sell in our context is brief interventions. We're selling interventions where somebody comes in, uh, which are MI-based. Somebody comes in and, you know, you screen them and they identify as high risk, moderate, and they need a brief intervention. So you're saying that in this 15, 20 minutes, you're going to create this therapeutic alliance and, and help somebody to start realizing that they have what it takes to make the decisions to change. But you, you're trying to do something that actually in reality ideally should take a few sessions because you know, you're going to walk somebody into their power and help them understand how does my personal internal power and my personal power in how I decide to tackle my challenge interface with the fact that I technically have little power outside of here. So these are difficult things to negotiate. And I, so that's just something to think about. You used a, a phrase there, walking someone into their power, which I think struck Glenn and I both as a, a wonderful image. Perhaps there's even a subtle place for ambivalence to arise in a way that providers don't often think about, regardless of where they're practicing around the world, that there may be, we talk about ambivalence a lot in terms of the specific behavior change, whether they want to reduce their drinking or wear masks in public, as the case might be now with COVID. But what you're suggesting, it seems, is that there may be a level of ambivalence on the person. And I, I guess as I'm talking about it, I'm not sure that it's maybe the right word for it, but it feels like there's some similarities there that there may be some ambivalence on the part of the person to embrace or accept the power that the provider is offering. And given that the medical doctors are, are just so often seen as this person with power and with knowledge that one must abide by or abide with, maybe there's, it's just such a foreign conversation to, to have for a person to have that sort of power offered to them. I wonder what your thoughts are about the concept of ambivalence in this context and how it fits with your experience. As you were talking, what came to mind for me was that Apple analogy again. The reason I'm bought into this is because I, I understand how the seamlessness and the, connect, the interconnectedness of my devices makes my life simpler. And I think one wants to use that ambivalence um, as a starting point to um, explore what are the factors that are resulting in it. Again, now, you know, this links back to psychodynamic ideas that, so if somebody understands why it is that they struggle to accept the power that they have over the outcome of their management and over the planning of their management, um, this might be a reach, I'm not citing any literature, but if you're able to start walking someone 
into realizing how their ambivalence is playing out in that circumstance. It could very well be a light bulb that makes them think about, how does this apply to my harmful substance use? Have I, realizing that I actually do have a voice and that I do have the ability to make decisions that change the course of where I'm headed, could the same be said for this, my inability to control when I drink, how I drink, where I am when I drink? So, you know, it, it sort of linked. I think you're right. I think the, the, the term is, is the right term. So I agree with you on it. But I think it's a vehicle that can be used in the therapeutic plan. I think in the context of how we are currently training providers, in that we're training them to provide these interventions in a very limited time, uh, in, in circumstances which might not always provide the privacy that you require you know, for a therapeutic assessment and intervention. So, you know, it's a question of how do you explore that ambivalence and how do you maximize the learning from the exploration of that ambivalence in the short time we're asking providers to do it in? I think if you're doing a much longer therapy, my therapist has been with me for seven years. I think she knows me better than anybody I, you know, can possibly know me. So if we decide to walk down a path of using my principles to explore how my ambivalence is related to certain things, there's time to do that. And so I think in a, in a more longer term therapeutic interaction, there's time to do that. But what about the short term? I'm not talking about you saying it. It sounds like there's, the efforts in South Africa are about endeavoring to make large populations of practitioners make some changes in their interventions and that that's a journey and that what it's about small changes by a lot of people in their interventions and over years that 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 can be developed but also part of that shift is about supporting practitioners recognize that they need to see and believe in the client's power and choicefulness for them to be able to walk them towards it you can't walk someone towards somewhere you don't think exists so there's a shift in the practitioner's attitude, the shift in the practitioner's understanding of who they are in the relationship and their willingness maybe to give up their traditional belief, having grown up in that world where doctors were one thing and now they've been told, well, we're inviting you to see the doctors as slightly different. Yes, you're going to be helpful, but what the research shows is you're going to be much more helpful if you approach it from this slightly different perspective where you invite clients to talk. And then when they go into that conversation, they go into that complex state that you're describing, which is some people who are coming to them have had very little power for a very long time and they've only got 15 minutes to change it. Quite a radical shift taking place across South Africa. And I'm just wondering, what are you seeing in relation to the efforts across South Africa about practitioners' willingness to change and the impact it's having on patient and client engagement and outcomes? I think that's so key about practitioners needing to be in a position to begin to make that shift to actually extend that message of the patient's own power in, in the interaction. I, I do think it's a shift that needs to happen. And again, I don't think that's unique to South Africa. I think that's probably across the board. And that really speaks to the need for practitioners to be mindful. But again, you can only be mindful once you become aware. And I mean, that's why there's exposure to evidence. What we've seen when we've trained providers, we've stratified our training offerings in a couple of ways. Uh, our mental health and self-care trainings are geared towards non-specialists at the moment, and that, you know, that will evolve. And in our self-care, we use a, a very much more simplified version of MI, which we call being a guide on the side. We talk about what are the things that somebody who has always been there for you and always listened to you, what are the features that they possess that really made you feel? And then we sort of talk about how do you extend that to a patient? 
Whereas with more professionalized cadres, we train specifically in MI and in, in, in screening, brief intervention and referral to treatment. And what we've seen there is the resistance can be quite profound because the practice has been so in, ingrained that patients take on an almost childlike quality in that they shouldn't be doing this. Uh, it's bad. In Afrikaans, we say stoat, and I'm going to tell you how to do it right. So you're not taking your LVs every day. Uh, bad, bad, bad. You're going to die. As opposed to, you know, can we talk about what you think you might achieve by taking treatment? I and mean, how does that align with what you want for your health outcomes kind of communication? So we experience a lot of resistance, which has played out in different ways. So there's, there's people who've been aggressively vocal about, are you trying to tell me that I don't know what I'm doing? Or are you telling me that I must listen to this person who has no academic medical background and make them part of this conversation? So those are the interesting responses we've had from some providers. So my team uses, as is required, role play in providing the training to these providers. And so when they experience their role as the patient, often the penny drops because then they experience the language of inclusion and of participating and of having a voice. Then the penny drops, oh, is that what it feels like? Because the end goal is the same. The end goal is improved health outcomes. It's uh, improved quality of life and it's improved industry. But the pathway to getting there is, is the shift that needs to happen. Some of the things we've heard is, I'm happy to realize that I don't have to contain this. Because I think some of the anxiety of having to get a patient better or how to get them taking their treatment is historically paternalistic and hard and it's a very hard line. So learning how to make that shift to a collaborative side-by-side -side is not always easy. Part of that is, so if somebody comes to a motivational interviewing training, understanding what MI is about. So suppose I came in and trained with you and it meant I get MI, I get what we're trying to achieve. How I receive and how I onboard the techniques will be different to somebody who comes in defensive, who comes in saying, I use problem solving therapy, I use this, I use that, and I don't know how this is going to fit. So when we walk in, there's often that resistance of, I know what I'm doing and of this person cannot be necessarily expected to know what to do. How can they have a voice in this process? I know better. I'm trained. I'm supported, etc. That's sort of the challenge. But you're very right that the shift has to be with practitioners, and that has to stem from mindful change. And so something that you structure in trainings or in learning environments is to have the practitioner adopt the role of what it would be, what it is like for a patient, and in particular, a patient treated with an approach or engage in a conversation where that traditional hierarchy exists, where they are told or confronted or perhaps even threatened into behavior change. And then experientially, they see, potentially, not everyone, I'm sure, that light bulb moment occurs and they can understand from their own lived experience in this role play, now I understand what happens when someone pushes back, when someone who's encouraged with all the right references to literature and perhaps factual evidence, how that in and of itself isn't what will guide someone to behavior change. That there needs to be other ways to provide this information for people to use it, uh, use it in the way that we all want, want to use it. 
Goodman, you mentioned something, another interesting phrase, the guide on the side, or that was a, a kind of a way that you've described part of your training methodology or, or mindset. I, I guess just wanted to hear more about what that was because I, I, I lost the thread on that. Yeah, so we necessarily would need to adopt styles of teaching which reach the demographic we're targeting. And when we train registered counselors or professional nurses or clinical psychologists or, or doctors, we can easily walk in and start saying ambivalence and start saying open-ended and start talking about ors. But when, you, when you're talking to non-specialist workers who have varying levels of education, many of them you know, have ninth or 10th grade level of education and haven't had any education beyond that. Some of them are older and, you know, may not have the capacity necessarily to grasp concepts which are very Anglican in origin, very Western. When we reach that circumstance, the, the necessity is that you have to find the language that will transmit the information. I'm purposely not saying simplify because I, 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 I don't want to say that because it's not what it is. It's about finding the appropriate language. And how we've done that is by distilling what the experience of being a partner in the conversation for change for the patient into how do you vocalize the experience of being empowered as a, as a patient. And then we've taken that and used that as the core features of what it is to experience having a guide on the side. By asking the providers, these are usually community health workers or peer providers who are in the community doing tracking and tracing HIV, saying to them, you know, what, do you, what are the things about your experiences of a supportive relationship, whether it's a, a partner, a friend, a family member, anybody, what are the experiences that have made you feel that you were in a trustworthy circumstance, where you felt listened to, where you felt like you had a say in what happens next? Ultimately, as I'm sure wouldn't be surprising to any of us, the features are the same. So, you know, somebody who lets me speak my mind, somebody who doesn't necessarily hold an opinion about what I'm saying. So somebody who lets me be unsure. And these things all link directly with the principles of MI. And almost without fail, these are exactly the same themes that have come out each time. And then you talk about, so what is it about when your sister listens to you in this way that makes you feel? And in that way, you actually create a practical and relatable experience of what it is to have a non-judgmental interaction. So somebody might say, whenever I tell them my problem, they are able to tell it back to me in a way that I may not have thought about. So you know, well, it's summarizing, but obviously what you don't come back and say is summarizing. You say, so when somebody tells you the story in that way, you feel like you've been heard. And so, so it, modeling and reinforcing those and, and then saying to them, well, if you go into the community now and you find somebody who is not taking their treatment, do you think that if you had to listen to their story and tell it back to them that they would feel valued and that they could be... So it's kind of working from the back end. And so that's kind of what we put together is that concept of being a guide on the side. What strikes me, Goodman, is that Everything that you've said is consistent with an approach, which is that you are going out to work with practitioners, to work with patients, to work with the community, work within the culture, where you are looking towards them and exploring where they're at and what is it they're doing and how to assist them. You're, you're inviting lots of evocation. You're doing a lot of evoking. You're drawing out of the people that you're with, what it is they know, what it is they think, what it is they can learn from their own experiences. And what you're changing is the, the language and making the language appropriate to where the individual's at to make them feel valued 
in the conversation they're having with you. And then being curious, what did you learn from that that you could then translate when it's your turn to be the lead in the conversation? And that almost like when you mentioned earlier on the, the professionals experience and some reluctance, it's almost like they go through a conversion experience when they realize, ah, someone treating me like this actually meant me made me feel warm. And the, the light bulb is now I know I can do this with another person and they will find it helpful because that's what they were always interested in. No one wants to take on an approach because it's lovely and fluffy. It needs to be, will this work? Will this help me do what I do? And once that, that experience is, is manifest for them, they introduce it and they do things differently. And again, just that whole, that shift away from what you're describing, that paternalism towards collaboration. And that's consistent with everything that you're doing and your whole approach to this, essentially culture shift in the treatment across South Africa. And I suppose, what are your hopes? What are your, what are your expectations or what are your, what would you like to be seeing change over time now that this is beginning in South Africa? And where do you see MI's place in that? I have to say, so you, you know, you were talking about how, how does a, a practitioner learn or navigate that part of having, creating that shift for providers. I think for me, uh, in, in training, I think for me, I'm part of that demographic that technically doesn't have a voice. I grew up in the township. I grew up knowing the experience of exclusion. I'm, you know, I'm 40 now. I was awake during the transition when uh, democracy arrived in South Africa and I saw the change and I see the areas where we haven't changed. And so I'm very much aware of my own, the parts of me that haven't uh, evolved to power yet. So there's parts of me which are clearly evolved in power and there's parts of me which are um, somatically not there yet. I'm still not good enough. So there's many things that we deal with. But I think that as a clinician, if you have an awareness of those parts of yourself, it's easier to be empathetic in how you engage with somebody that needs to make a similar path on a smaller journey. So that smaller journey is, is, is changing the motivation to change harmful alcohol. So you're not trying to change immediately in any case their whole outlook on life, but trying to certainly help them find the motivation for these smaller changes that will lead to better outcomes for themselves. So I think that's part of it is the clinician's ability to empathize and be sensitive and to step back from themselves and allow the patient the space. So that's, I think that's part of it. And that comes again from that mindfulness and being receptive to that sort of experience for the patient. I think that, um, you know, and there's, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's, I mean, there's other elements that would come into play there, you know, the, the clinician's own disposition, how willing are they to be consultative? I've trained under many fantastic folks who some of them are more democratic and consultative than others. Uh, there's, there's some who it's my way or the highway, or there's others who let's talk together. I have certainly hope my team experiences me as the latter. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm not privy to those conversations when I'm not around. <laughs> so I think that in terms of for South Africa, I think that the place for MI is in the shift that has to happen in, in our country as a whole from a, a, a larger cultural perspective in terms of recognizing people's voice and, and enabling the space for them to have industry and decisions that impact on their health and economic outcomes. And then also in, in, you know, in terms of clinical service, ensuring that patients are partners and collaborators in designing healthcare and in designing their own interventions is not 
only, and this is one of the selling points I often share with collaborators, that what we're, what we're trying to do here is to take the pressure off the practitioner. We're trying to say, you don't have to have all the answers. The patient has the answers. Your role is to walk with the patient to identifying those answers. So if we have a, a system that is enabling of the changes that allow that voice to be nurtured, for me, that's the change that MI is going to bring. And I think the, the most important thing is when we, you know, when we talk about MI, we, we don't come in and say, throw all your, throw all your toys out. We say, no, keep your toys. Uh, this is something that you can use to contain some of your toys. And so this is something that can be cross-cutting and is not exclusive of anything. And I think that, again, is an idea that is required, not just in South Africa, but across the world. There's this idea that, uh, you know, things are always other. Things are always external. And they have, when they come, they are proposing something completely new that must either be seen as superior to what has been there before or inferior and kicked out. And that's what we're saying with MIs. That's not what we're saying. We're saying here's a style of communication that you can apply to use the tools you're really good at. You're really good at problem solving. You're really good at CBT. You're really super at schema therapy. How about trying out this language that allows you to take a load off a little bit and allow the patient to be a partner and in so doing actually empower them to, to drive some of how this. So it, it, it's about capacitating patients. It's about changing the culture to a more socially inclusive and listening culture. And for me, that's, that's, that's the vision. Well, Goodman, you've, you've really uh, guided us through an exploration on both sides of the conversation uh, around healthcare interventions from a patient's perspective, really helped us better understand some of these challenging points in conversations. For instance, when a patient has their own views or their own strategies for health and how a provider can be respectful in uh, approaching those differing perspectives and how they might engage in conversation with a patient to include the provider's own recommendations. Also inviting us to really be aware and mindful of the power differential and, and a patient's lack of power in their day-to-day -day life and how MI can be a really sharp shift for them when the provider is inviting them to engage in this more collaborative discussion. And then conversely, from a provider standpoint, the importance of the provider being really in touch with their own experience and how that can influence the, the healthcare delivery in any number of ways. And then just a moment ago, you used this phrase, uh, again, I'm, I'm really, a lot of the phrases that you're using, Goodman, are, are, are striking a, a, a really nice chord for me. Like you said, you can keep your toys. Uh, and the, the point isn't for providers to give up the things that they spent so many years and energy and money to learn and, to, and they really have adopted and, and they really believe in that adopting MI isn't about giving up your toys, but it's about finding a way, I suppose, to help the provider share their toys with the person that it's intended to be effective with. It's a way to sort of facilitate that. And I wonder if, if you could spend just a few moments here. I know we're, we're getting close to the end of our conversation today, but maybe if we, if we take the context of the HIV work that you're doing, and in particular, you mentioned some of the community health workers and peer support uh, persons that you help train. How are all of these concepts and these, these important lessons that you're sharing with us, how does it play out on the ground, so to speak, out in the communities, working with people from a provider standpoint, we're asking to make lots of really significant behavior changes to help manage their HIV illness. Yeah, I think that one of the limitations of the trainings that we do is that 
we don't always have the scope to go back, you know, and reinforce. And that's always been something that, you know, I've, I've, I've been sad about, sad, um, that I, I've been unhappy about. And hopefully in future, we can find ways to be more uh, consistently uh, in touch with folks we've trained to continue to provide that top up and that reinforcement of the principle. Certainly what we have done is gone back to these providers and asked them, you know, since you've received this training, how has your behavior been in terms of communicating with patients, in terms of um, eliciting uh, harmful behaviors and in facilitating conversation to adopt behaviors that will lead to change? And, and so what we've gotten from feedback that we've received from providers is, is, is things I'm, I'm specifically, I'm actually looking at all the quotes in my mind because we've done, we've done a couple of surveys where people say I, they felt stronger in their ability to engage with patients because they realized it wasn't all up to them. I, I think, you know, anything that I would provide as, as further detail with that might be a little bit uh, presumptuous because we haven't done a specific scientific investigation. But those are, those are some of the qualitative sort of feedbacks that we've had. So it appears that um, there has been a level of capacitation to providers that allows them to step back from being the hero and allows them to be a collaborator. So that, that's kind of been the sense across the field. And hopefully, you know, we'll be continuing to monitor them. We're starting some monitoring and evaluation programs in the coming months, uh, the next couple of years, uh, on the cadres that we've trained and new ones that we're training. So hopefully soon we'll be able to more quantitatively actually provide sort of evidence for what that change in perspective results in for, for, client, for the client experience. So again, it's back to that, that realization that if I, as a helping practitioner, want to help people that I can come into contact with to change, then I must be changing myself to help them achieve that. Because whatever I'm doing, if I keep doing that, I'll keep getting the same results. You're creating an environment where uh, existing practitioners and new practitioners in South Africa are being offered opportunities to think about what what would you find helpful for you to be willing to think a little differently, or you know what what are you already bringing to this party that's all working and understand why it's working. And as you explore that, help them understand well what is it you're doing that's maybe not working and why is that not working. And just to be curious about both, and then to invite them to decide what do you want to do with this awareness when you go back out into practice in, in your desire to be helpful to other people. And it's just that sharing of experience and almost like recognizing the paradox of co- collaboration. You don't lose power in collaboration. In fact, you enhance the power. It's uh, it's almost exponential. The, the more you share the power, the more power you experience and the, the outcomes that you, you set out to achieve. So really exciting stuff in, in what you're describing. And unfortunately, given the time that we have, I'm just going to shift gear slightly and shift direction and at this point normally what we ask uh guest good man is what's happening what's going on for you at the moment that's catching your attention so not it doesn't necessarily have to be mi oriented but just something that, that that's catching your attention that we could have a quick chat about goodness me i think um i left facebook maybe five six years ago and the reason that i left facebook is because um, there was an incident locally where uh, a woman called a bunch of um, swimmers at a beach she referred to them as monkeys and the interaction that followed made me realize how toxic that space had become because what was missing was the real engagement about what is it about this that's offensive? Why is it offending some people? Can we engage on that? And why is it that you don't think it's offensive? I think so these are the conversations that are really important to take us forward. And I think for me, that's 
on my mind about what's happening now with, with COVID-19. And it's not just in the US, not just in the West, it's also happening locally in South Africa, where so much of the engagement is just toxic and nasty. And um, it's splitting a, across um, a racial and cultural lines in, in ways which I think we may not have experienced should we not have a world as connected as it is now through social media. So it plays on my mind a lot, the amount of information and engagements which aren't necessarily healthy that we're exposed to as a result of the way the world is organized now. And that, that's on my mind a lot. I'm very mindful of how I engage with information and with news and with uh, social media. I suppose not surprising that uh, your description of toxic communication that easily is sparked from a social media post is something that here we are speaking literally from three different continents, and I'm sure we can all relate quite easily to the to the notion of toxic communication. And and again, in three different continents, all impacted by this global pandemic, where one might think that we we have the sort of a common enemy. I, I unfortunate to use that term, maybe in in that sort of warring kind of sense, but you know, we have this common challenge that we all share where there's some really basic things that we're all striving for, you know, to stay healthy, to stay alive in many respects. And even in that context, the communication can be so fractured and toxic and blaming and us versus them. And yeah, well, certainly, uh, certainly something that's on a lot of people's minds and a, a challenge for society, likely for forever, I, I imagine at some, at some point. Goodman, another thing we ask our guests here at the end of our conversation is if people in the audience are interested in contacting you to ask questions or to share some of their experiences, would you be willing for them to do so? And if so, how might they reach you? Yes, please do. Uh, they're welcome to. They can tweet me. It's uh, at Dr. Goodman Sibeko. Um, I think, Sebastian, you follow me already. So people can access me on Twitter. They can also email me at goodman.sibeko at uct.ac.za. Uh, I'm also easy to find on the University of Cape Town website under Faculty of Health Sciences. And also if you search for me on the um, Addiction Technology Transfer Center network, uh, you'll find me there as well. Uh, I would just say don't send me a direct message. I'm horrible with those. <laughs> but communicate me, with me in any other way. And I'll, I'll Fantastic. And, and just to clarify, this, the spelling of your surname is S-A-B-E-K-O. Well, Goodman, thank you very much for your time here. So just before we finish, perhaps, Seb, you could then include our social media links for people how they can contact us and leave reviews. Absolutely. So on Twitter, it's at Change Talking. On Facebook, Goodman, you won't be seeing this, of course, but uh, on Facebook, it is Talking to Change. And on Instagram, it is Talking to Change Podcast. And any emails to us, you can reach us at podcast at glenhines.com. Thank you very much, Goodman, for your time and for sharing your wisdom and offering us an insight into some of the fantastic work that's already taken place in South Africa and the efforts to make people's experiences across the whole country much more collaborative. And it sounds like the universal experiences is that there are changes being offered and we are all experiencing some ambivalence towards what it is we're doing, whether we're practitioners or whether we're patients. And part of what you're endeavoring to do is to create a culture of acceptance and curiosity and to work with people on that journey as we all move forward together. So thank you very much for your time and your contribution. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.